Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I wonder if you've ever seen something so peculiar because of its beauty that it sticks out in contrast to everything that's around it. Something that is just so striking that it makes you pause and wonder how it got there or how it became so different. Sometimes you might drive along the highway and you'll see all the weeds that are growing up in the median and then ever so often in the midst of all of those weeds you'll just see one bright red flower and you say wow I wonder how that got there many of us who have children will go to a recital maybe piano lessons or maybe a choir that they're in. And, and we all go to those recitals because we love our children. We want to support them as they continue to grow. And it is an act or a labor of love to go to those sorts of recitals as you sit and you listen to all of the other students go through their musical pieces just so you can get to the two or three minutes of your child. But every now and again, as you're going through the begrudging minutes that turn into seemingly hours, there is just one student who plays something that is so strikingly beautiful that you just sit back and say, how did that person get in with this bunch? Some of you will buy a car this year and as you go across the car dealership in this just sea of black and white and silver vehicles, you'll catch out of the corner of your eye the bright blue Corvette. And it's striking in its beauty. And it sticks out and you say, wow, that is so different. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to his father. And he turns his attention to praying, it says in verse 20, for those who will believe. He has prayed that the father would glorify him. He's prayed for those who are his disciples in the world. And now he prays for those who are coming after. Those who will be followers. Those who the father has given to him who will believe in him and who will bear his name. Jesus is praying for the people that will become Christians. And in essence, uh, the essence of his prayer is that they would have something so profound, 
something so beautiful, something so peculiar in the world that is around them that people who brush up against them will take a big step back and they'll say, wow, they must know something that I don't know. (laughs) God must be with them. In John 17, Jesus is praying that in a dark world that is divided in all kinds of ways that these future Christians would be the light and that they would be the light because of their unity. And what I want to do this morning over the next couple of minutes together is that as we look at these six verses in John chapter 17, I want to upend your view of all the people that you have around you in this room today. Because there's a lot of reasons why you go to a church. There's a lot of types of relationships that you might have in a church or in this church. But it is my estimation that the vast majority of us most likely underestimate the significance of the relationship that you have with the people in this room here today. It's a significance that's not based on simply what you experience. It's a significance that's not based on only what you believe. There is something supernatural about the way that God binds Christians together. And that's what we see in John chapter 17. We look in verses 20 through 23 and we see that there is a supernatural union that produces a supernatural unity. There's a difference between union and unity and we see in this prayer the nature of both. Jesus prays and he prays for a very clear type of unity for those who would follow him. And he says it three times for the sake of emphasis. Look at verse 21. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Again, verse 22, he prays, they may be one even as we are one. And again in verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Jesus prays that Christians would experience the type of unity that is displayed in the Godhead. The Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so perfect in their unity that these three persons share the very same essence. They're never in contradiction or conflict with each other. They always share the same goal. And even though their roles are different from each other, there is never a hint of jealousy or a whiff of competition or a departure from the core of who they are. The goal of the church, Jesus prays, is not simply to enjoy any old type of unity. It's to have a very specific type of unity. It's the unity that he prays is in us. You can have generic unity in this world around all kinds of things, all kinds of ideas or activities, and depending upon how meaningful those things are or the character of people involved, that will dictate how strong the unity is and how long it actually lasts. But when Jesus says in verse 21, 
he prays that they also may be in us. He is saying that the unity that you Christians enjoy with each other is not just based on mutual interest. It's not based on activity. It's not based on geographical location. It's not based on shared experience. It's much, much, much more profound than that. This unity is based on the combination of relationship and position. It's based on a supernatural union that you have with God the Father through faith in God the Son and is sealed by God the Holy Spirit. You are positionally and relationally united to God in your faith in a way that the rest of the world is not. And so Jesus recognizes that believers are found in him. And by being in him, he prays by extension that we will be found in the same type of union that God shares with his son, Jesus Christ. And this is quite clearly supernatural in its nature. So it's not surprising then that if you, Christian, are now in this incredible supernatural union with God and his son through your faith, it's not surprising that Jesus prays that the glory that he has received is a glory that he gives. Look at verse 22. He says, the glory that you have given me, he's praying to his father, I have given them. Now that's truly an amazing thing. And it's incredibly difficult to grasp. How is it that Christians can share in the glory of the eternal Son of God. How is it that Christians can share in the glory of the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who ascended into heaven? The eternal Son of God who created all things, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who has angels and elders surrounding him and worshiping him, and who will be the judge over all things. Glory is an aspect of a person that makes him or her worthy of praise, worthy of honor and respect. Glory is often associated with beauty or splendor, and sometimes it's associated with accomplishment. And when God makes himself known, glory is the recognition of his splendor. And Jesus says that he gives that glory to you. How could this possibly be? Well, it's clearly related to your salvation. It's clearly related to your supernatural union with him. And it's clearly related to, in this prayer, your supernatural 
unity to each other. The glory of the eternal Son of God is somehow displayed in you. (laughs) And so if you think, friend, that your salvation in Christ is something that simply gives a slight right or left turn to the life that you were already living, something that you can tack on to the goals and agendas that you already have, then you clearly do not appreciate that in Christ you share in a type of glory that is so much better than all the other things that you were previously striving for. And if you think, friends, that your unity with other Christians The other Christians in this church is simply reduced to making sure that you get along (laughs) with the people that are here. And if you really don't like them, that you become quite adept at tolerating them or even avoiding them, then you might miss the notion that as the perfect eternal God relates to the perfect eternal Son and as a glorious and full display of his majesty and splendor is found in that relationship, you too are given the opportunity to receive and to participate in otherworldly glory. And it is displayed, Jesus says, in your unity with each other. That's amazing. (laughs) That is amazing. You receive the glory of Jesus and you display it in the way that you relate to one another. Think about that. Think about that the next time that your preference is not met. Think about it the next time that you might be tempted and on the verge of gossip. Think about that the next time someone does something that annoys you or even hurts your feelings. Supernatural union leads to supernatural unity and glory is shown in that type of unity. Friends, you could ponder the reality of that many days on. But at the very least, what it should do in you is that it should start to stir in you an outlook on not this building, not this place, not the church as an organization. It should start to stir in you a new and deeper appreciation for the people, the people that God has placed in your life for the sake of that glory. We see that this unity has a purpose to it. Look at verses 21 and verses 23 with me. He says that the purpose is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Because of your faith in Jesus, 
you've been supernaturally united to God, the Father, and the Son, and you mirror his unity in your unity with one another, and as a result, you display glory and splendor and majesty of Jesus to a world that does not know him and does not understand that he was sent by God. Your unity with each other shows the world that Jesus is from God. That's a great purpose. You represent that glory of Jesus himself and you do so in how you interact with each other. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that you don't simply represent yourself? (laughs) But you represent not just a group of people, but even God himself? When your kids are involved in school or in community activities, you teach them that when they go out and do these things that they don't simply represent themselves. They represent your entire family. And you know that a poorly behaved child reflects poorly not just on himself, reflects poorly on the entire family. You've seen that to be true. And the same is true for Christians. When you live in a world like this, you don't just represent yourself. You represent the glory of Jesus. And a poorly behaved Christian can skew a vision of the Lord to the onlooking world around, but a unified group of Christians in a world that's tearing itself apart and fighting and division can make onlookers stop and pause and wonder at the magnificence of such unique relationships. And that means that your unity with each other is meant to be observable in its nature, right? That unity is not, again, simply just looking to, you know, peaceably get along, but there is an observable nature to this. And this is where the spiritual reality comes all the way down to the ground for you and for me. It's one thing to say that you're united because we participate in the same things or we worship at the same place every week or we believe the same things about the Lord and we're on the same mission for him. That's one type of observable unity. But when that unity is tested, you see another type of observable unity in a world that's in constant disarray. There's a deeper connection among these types of people. And the connection comes not simply by your will, though that is part of it. It is supernaturally empowered by God himself as you continue to draw closer to him. I think the helpful analogy of drawing closer to God means that you necessarily draw closer to each other is found in one of my favorite places to go in the Rocky Mountains. When you drive across eastern Montana, you travel through hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of rural pasture. There's no cell phone service. You see the random cattle and a lot of rusty pickup trucks. And then all of a sudden, like a shot out of the ground, you see the Rocky Mountains. If you think of the analogy that those who live in the pasture land are of the world, hundreds of miles in 
multiple directions. But the believers of Jesus are going up the mountain. (laughs) As they grow closer to God, they ascend from all sides, of course not by their own volition or their own will, but by the grace that God gives. And as they get higher and higher and higher, the mountain becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. And all of a sudden, a group of people that were scattered at great distance from each other as they ascend toward God are in close proximity to one another. This is the type of unity that Christians enjoy. As they get close to God, they get close to each other. And the world around looks at them and they say, that is something peculiar. Your union with Christ leads to unity with Christians and the world gets to see it. Your union with Christ leads to unity with Christians that the whole world can see. The second part of this section of the prayer, Jesus gives another request to God. If this was an earthly request for unity, the second request is a heavenly request. It's that we will be with Jesus forever. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants to be with you forever. He wants you to understand him and it says he wants you to see his glory more fully. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to be with Jesus. I hope for Jesus. I long for Jesus. Life is hard. Sometimes I lose my focus on the things that matter the most. I'm so easily tempted to get enraptured in things that are of lesser consequence. Things that might please me for a minute or things that might cause me to fight for a few hours. But when we're with Jesus forever, we won't have those types of distractions anymore. And we won't have those types of problems. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Jesus prays for you to be in heaven with him to see his glory fully. The story is told of the rich man who is determined to take his wealth with him to heaven. You've heard many such stories of things that people say, well, I don't know if I want to go unless I can take this or that or that person with me. And this man persisted with the Lord. And finally, the story is told the Lord gave in to his fervent prayers. And there was one condition that he could bring only one suitcase of valuables. The rich man decided that he would fill the suitcase with the most important things to him in the world. And so it was a suitcase full of gold bullion. The day came when God called the man home, 
St. Peter agreed to him and told him that he couldn't bring in his suitcase. And the man said, well, I have an agreement with God. Well, that's pretty unusual, Peter said. You mind if I take a look? And the man opened the suitcase to reveal the shining gold bullion. Peter was amazed. And he stood back and he said, why on earth would you bring pavement into heaven? When you go to be with the Lord, you will not need trivial valuables of earth. Heaven is going to be so much greater than you can imagine. And the glory that you not only see in the Lord Jesus, but participate in because he has given it to you is so much greater than the things that are most important to you right now. We see in verse 25 and 26 that Jesus, as he prays for his followers to be with him forever, he not only prays that God will do this, but also he has acted on their behalf to secure this. Verses 24 and 25 show that Jesus does this by making God's name known to them. He says in verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which they loved, that you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Last week we talked about the significance of making God's name known. It's more than just proclaiming who God is. It's more than just saying his name is Yahweh. To make his name known means that Jesus reveals his essential character or nature of God. That Jesus makes God's name known by showing us his attributes, by showing his love and justice and mercy and loving kindness, that he points us to God's sovereignty and to his omnipotence, that he reveals God's glory. And as such, we begin to see that there is nothing more meaningful, nothing more desirous, not one more thing that could possibly fulfill us any more than God himself could do. Jesus makes God's name known, the glory and the splendor and the divine. And as such, we believe in him. And when we do, we spend eternity with him forever. It's hard to grasp the notion of eternity. Our minds cannot begin to conceive how long a time that might be. The last calendar year felt like an eternity to some of us. But my friends, it pales in comparison. Dorothy Morrell from Seattle tries to get her mind around time as she explains it in terms of trillions. She says, I asked myself, why not think of it in terms of seconds? A trillion seconds would have to be years, probably many years. I made a wild guess. And as it turns out, I wasn't close, she said. I found that 1,000 seconds was equal to almost 17 minutes. That it would take almost 12 days for a million seconds to elapse. And it would take 31.7 years for a billion seconds. 
Therefore, a trillion seconds would amount to no less than 31,709.8 years. A trillion seconds ago, there was no written history. Pyramids weren't built. It would be 10,000 years, according to the author, before cave paintings in France were to begin. As I was alone, not know, was I alone in not knowing how long a trillion seconds actually was? She said, I asked some of my neighbors, if I gave you a trillion dollars, but you had to count it in ones, would you take it? And uniformly they said, no, because that would take up more than the rest of my life. Jesus prays that his followers would be with him for eternity. And indeed they will. My mind could not even begin to grasp that length of time and what it means and the things that cause disunity among us. Christians are so short. The things that cause disunity among us are so inconsequential in light of eternity. <laughs> the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of not seconds, but hours. The trillions upon trillions of not hours, but days which is trillions upon trillions of years and years and years. And so in this prayer, Jesus prays for glory. He prays for Christians to be kept safe in a world that hates them. And he prays that for those who will believe that they will be unified and join him in heaven. Supernatural union with Christ leads to supernatural unity with Christians. And the world sees it. The idea of unity sounds really good, but we all know it can be hard. What are the obstacles to unity for a group of people like this? What are the obstacles for unity in your own life? Pride, hurt feelings, different perspectives, distraction from the Lord and focus on lesser things, sinful words or actions that each and every one of us fall into, the, the list goes on. I think about the tradition that claims that Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over a cave in which Christ is said to have been buried. And in July 2002, the church became the scene of an ugly fight between the monks who run it. The conflict began when a Coptic monk sitting on the rooftop decided to move his chair into the shade. And this took him into the part of the rooftop courtyard that was looked after by the Ethiopian monks. It turns out that the Ethiopian monks and the Coptic monks have been arguing over the rooftop of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for centuries. In 1752, the Ottoman Sultan issued an edict declaring which parts of the church belonged to each of the six major Christian groups at the time, the Latins, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox, the Syrian Orthodox, the Copts, and the Ethiopians. And despite the edict, the conflict over the church remains. The rooftop had been controlled by the Ethiopians, but then they lost control to the Copts when they were hit by a disease epidemic in the 19th century. And then in 1970, the Ethiopians regained control when the Coptic monks were absent for a short period. They've been squatting there ever since. 
1970, with at least one Ethiopian monk always remaining on the roof to assert their rights. And in response to this, the Coptic monk, who had been living on the roof also, was there to maintain the rights of the Coptics. And so we get to Monday in July of 2002, when the Coptic monk moves his chair into the shade and encroaches on the space of the Ethiopian monk. Harsh words led to pushes and then shoves until an all-out brawl is occurring, including the throwing of chairs and iron bars. And at the end of the fight, 11 of the monks were injured, including one monk unconscious in the hospital and another one with a broken arm. It sounds like the relational battles that happens in some churches you might have been to. How tragic it is when a church that serves as the memorial to Christ is the scene of bitter conflict for his followers. It's a far cry, isn't it, from the call to love one another, to turn the other cheek, or the prayer to become one. You can tie the tail of a dog and a cat together and they might be united. But that does not mean they will function in unity. But your union with Christ leads to unity with Christians that the world can see. Friends, I think this past year has tested the desire for unity for a lot of people and for a lot of churches all over the world, not just here. Some have struggled, some have failed, and others have thrived. When I think about our church, I am not surprised in some ways to see that some among us have struggled. A few have even left, but so many of you have thrived. I'm happy to say that for years now, our congregation has enjoyed unity <laughs> on the large scale. It's a unity that can only be described as supernatural in its nature. The glory of Jesus is displayed in that way. It's displayed in you and in your unity so strive to keep it. Strive to rely upon him for it. Strive to represent not just yourself, but that very Lord who has saved you. Strive to continue to be like a flower that's blooming in a patch of weeds along the median of the freeway of this world. Maintain the beauty of unity together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you do in us and through us, and we thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. Continue to deepen and widen the unity that we enjoy. Allow us to see each other differently today than we did yesterday. Help us to love and to serve and to sacrifice more for these ones that you have placed us with. And may we continue to experience and display the glory that you've given. In Jesus' name. Amen.